This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 294th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we are going to do a location suggested by listener Sarah Emmons, and this is Dover Castle. Yes, asylums, theaters, and castles, oh my, they always seem to be haunted places, don't they? We have quite a few haunts going on here and a really cool history as well. Before we get into that, I just have a little bit of business to take care of. First of all, I have announced previously that I am getting a night at the Velisca Axe Murder House in Iowa. That is going to be on September 7th, and I had 10 spots available for that. We are down to two, so if this is something you want to do, you need to get on board like right now. So what you're going to do is go over to historyghostbump.com and click on the Velisca sign-up tab, and there you can sign up for it, send me your deposit, and we'll get you all set up. You're going to want to do that ASAP if you want to be a part of it. This is a great opportunity. If you've ever wanted to do a ghost hunt at the Velisca Axe Murder House, this is your opportunity. And speaking of ghost hunts, we just did our first official ghost hunt around here at the historic Baker House, which is in Wildwood, Florida. This is a house that really hadn't had any ghost hunting done in it before, at least not to the general public. I'm still going through the audio to see if I've caught any EVPs, but we had a ton of activity at this place. Unfortunately, I didn't get a whole lot of history about it, and there's not a whole lot of history out there. The home is just transferred hands from the actual Baker family who'd had it for a very long time into the hands of the Historical Society, and they're in the process of doing a lot of refurb, and so they're doing these tours to try to make money to refurb it. So it didn't feel like it would be a really great episode for the regular feed. So I am going to be doing that as the next bonus cast. And since it's the first bonus cast of the month, which will be in April of 2019, that means everybody who's at the $2 and above level is going to get that episode. So if you want to listen in to the Baker House bonus cast, it's $2 a month. Give up a coffee and you can sign up for that. You will get that and all of the back episodes that are at the $2 level. For those of you at $5 and above, you get the entire back archive of all of the bonus casts. I don't even know how many there are at this point. We're almost at 200 of them. So if you need more to listen to, it's there for you to listen to. And speaking of bonus casts, I just got done doing one on the Devil's Chord. I've gotten a lot of great feedback on that. You guys definitely enjoyed that one. It was a little bit different for me, and I had a kick-butt time doing it. So I'm glad you guys have enjoyed that. 
If you want to become an integral part of History Goes Bump and keep the show going and help me to produce episodes, plus get a ton of great stuff in return. It's not like you're just giving me money and you don't get anything in return. Head over to historygoesbump.com and there is a tab there, support the show. It'll tell you how you can do it. You can either do it at Patreon or PayPal and I would greatly appreciate it. Now let's welcome some people into the Spooktacular crew. We have Rochelle, Mary, Becky with an IE, Sasha, Amanda, Samantha, Sophie, Shelly with a Y, and Jean with an E at the end. Welcome, everybody. We're glad to have you. And now, this moment, Noddity. The moment Noddity was suggested by John Michaels. I'm sure there are a few of you out there that are movie credit readers like myself. Yep, I stay through the credits, not only to see if the producers of the film have thrown in a little extra at the end of the film, but I like to pay my respects to the full list of people who've made a film, the ones generally not paid much. If you've sat through the credits on any movie, you've probably seen the phrase, this is a work of fiction, any similarity to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Did you ever wonder why every movie has that disclaimer? MGM released the movie Rasputin and the Empress in 1932. This film featured the story about mystic Grigory Rasputin and his relationship with the Russian imperial family, specifically the Tsarina, Alexandra Fyodorovna. The Barrymore siblings, John, Ethel, and Lionel, played the key characters of Prince Chagadiev, the Tsarina, and Rasputin. It is the only film in which all three siblings appear together. The prince was depicted as the murder of Rasputin, and he was meant to represent Prince Yusupov, who was still alive. He threatened to sue, but he didn't have the money to do so, and he had claimed in his memoir that he was responsible for Rasputin's death. So his wife sued, because she was also depicted in the movie, and the film claimed she was raped by Rasputin. She felt that ruined her reputation, particularly since it didn't happen. She won $127,000, the equivalent of almost $2.4 million today. The reason she won, according to the judge, was because the studio acknowledged that the movie was based on a true story. After that, studios decided to add the disclaimer to cover their butts, and they do it to this day. So basically, Rasputin not only had an enduring impact on Russia, but also on Hollywood filmmaking, and that certainly is odd. And here is one of my favorite podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, is based on my five-star rated guided walk, and features more than 300 untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, old cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist, all researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favorite podcast platform every Thursday. 
Thank you for listening and stay safe. And now, This Month in History. of March on the 15th in 1956, the musical My Fair Lady premiered on Broadway. This was a musical based on George Bernard Shaw's Pamalian. The story features a cockney flower girl who desires to pass as a lady, and so she takes speech lessons from Professor Henry Higgins. The musical was directed by Moss Hart, choreographed by Hanya Holm, and starred Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews, and ran for 2,717 performances, closing on September 29, 1962. That was a record at the time. The Broadway theater that hosted it was the Mark Hellinger Theater in New York City, and then it transferred to the Broadhurst Theater, and then finally on to the Broadway Theater. Rex Harrison was not experienced in performing live with an orchestra, and at the first preview he declared, under no circumstances would he go on that night, with those 32 interlopers in the pit. He then locked himself in his dressing room. He eventually came out right before the curtain went up, and opening night was a success. The musical headed over to London where it was a smash hit as well and went on to become the classic film starring Audrey Hepburn. My Fair Lady is considered to be the perfect musical. Dover Castle stands on the White Cliffs of Dover in Britain. This castle was originally not much to behold, but during the reign of King Henry II, it would become a grand structure. Tunnels lie beneath the castle and are built into a cliff, making it unique among castles. This is the largest castle in the country and has been around since the 12th century. It also was a key defense and saw wars that were revolutionary, civil, Napoleonic, and great. Today, it is a tourist destination with a reputation for being haunted. Join me for the history and hauntings of Dover Castle. Dover is located in Kent in the southeast of England. This is an area where human habitation dates back to the Stone Age. The Romans were the first to have a significant presence here, and that is evident in the Roman lighthouse that still stands near Dover Castle. This is the tallest Roman structure in Britain and was built between 115 and 140 AD. The Church of St. Mary in Castro stands next to the lighthouse and was built during the late 10th and early 11th century. The church was neglected for years and used for storing coal, but it's refurbished today and beautiful inside. And when I say that it's next to the lighthouse, I mean, literally, they're right next to each other. So the church has turned the lighthouse into its bell tower. It's kind of cool. Dover would become a fortified port and one of the sink ports and has been nicknamed the Lock and Key of England with its strategic placement on the English Channel. Dover Castle would be built on the White Cliffs of Dover, which are that color because they are mostly composed of chalk. As I said, Dover Castle is the largest castle in England, and it was built by Duke William of Normandy in the 12th century. It was much smaller than what you see today. The Great Tower was constructed during the reign of Henry II in 1179 and served a couple of purposes. The first was that it made for a great lookout. The other was more for Henry. 
He wanted something impressive to show off, and he felt it reflected his power, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later. People who were traveling to Canterbury Cathedral could see the tower along the road. Let's talk about Henry for a minute. This guy had a lot going for him. I mean, he was Duke of Normandy from 1150, the Count of Anjou, Maine, and Nantes from 1151, Duke of Aquitaine from 1152, and King of England from 1154. He also partially controlled Scotland, Wales, and Duchy of Brittany, and he had eight children, five of them boys. So, you know, back then, having the boys was a big deal. So things were good, but he just had to start something with his friend, Thomas Beckett, whom he'd appointed Archbishop in 1162. And I guess it isn't fair to blame it all on the king. He was stubborn, but Beckett was a vain man and highly political. Their disagreements were numerous, and neither would back down. And a lot of those disagreements had to do with differences between the government and religion and not mixing the two and honoring them and all that other kind of garbage. You know, you don't talk about politics or religion in mixed company. And that's what these two were fighting about, politics and religion. King Henry would have one final altercation with Beckett. He sent knights to Canterbury to arrest Beckett for breaking an agreement. But Beckett refused to be arrested by lowly knights. So right there before the altar in the church, those knights hacked Becket to death, and then they looted his palace. Right after this, King Henry faced a rebellion led by his sons and wife. So things went from good to bad, for sure, if you've got the wife and the kids all rebelling against you. And there was also an invasion from Scotland and France going on. He overcame this, and many said that Becket, who had been declared a saint by the Pope, had helped Henry. There are historians that believe Henry added the improvements to Dover Castle because of his guilt over his part in the murder of Becket. Now, the king never came out and said, yes, I ordered Becket to be murdered, but he did definitely pay penance. He went to the grave of Becket and he got down on his knees and it was almost like how they would tell you in the Bible, somebody would put on sackcloth and throw dirt on themselves and all this stuff to show how sorry they were. Well, that's basically what he did. He stuck his head in to where there was an opening to the grave and he just really made a show of it. And whether it was the real deal or he was just making a show of it, I don't know for sure, but it seemed like he had gotten the favor of Beckett after his death here. And Henry really felt like he had helped him overcome this because you got to think you've got everything against you and you managed to overcome it. So, and it was right after he had said he was sorry to Beckett about basically having him murdered. So he attributed this great win and overcoming all this to Beckett. And of course, this history that I just laid out for you is just the surface history. There's a lot there. When I say they have disagreements, I mean, we're talking books have been written about these disagreements. So there's a lot of information there. So starting in 1179, King Henry II spent more money on Dover Castle than any other. And nobody could figure out why. We're looking around going, okay, it's a cool castle and everything, but why are you spending so much money on this thing? There was no great threat that the castle needed to protect against. It was in a really strategically great place right there on the English Channel, which you would want to guard. But since there's really no threat going on, and this hasn't really seen any major wars, why would you pour all this money into it? And I don't know about you guys, but I wanted to know, because I'm one of those people. I just have to know. I mean, here you have a castle that basically had been ignored by Henry. He hadn't done anything with it. And then all of a sudden, he's making it the biggest castle in the country and pouring a ton of money into it, making all of these drastic improvements like the Great Tower I told you about. It's said that until his death, 
He spent a total of 5,991 pounds, which was almost two-thirds of the total expenditures on all English castles during those years. So that would be like our country saying, okay, let's refurb everything in Washington, D.C. But when it comes to the White House, we're going to pour everything that we've used to refurb all of the other buildings in D.C. We're going to use two-thirds of that money to refurb the White House. I think a lot of us would be like, what? Why? The king was building this almost as a shrine to Beckett because it was near to Canterbury. The castle had fallen previously and was nothing special, but in 1179, the king of France, Louis VII, traveled to England, and this became the first state visit in English history. So up until that time, we hadn't had any of these state visits. Henry met him at Dover, and they went on to Canterbury, where Louis paid his respects to Becket in a pilgrimage to save his ill son. So at this point, Becket has been declared a saint by the Pope. So now he's St. Thomas. And people believe that he has some kind of healing power. So this is why the King of France has come here on this pilgrimage, because he's hoping that St. Thomas can save his son from whatever he's ill with. They returned to Dover afterward. This incredible visit probably gave the king the idea that more of these kinds of visits would be coming, and he wanted to really impress visitors. Thus, he poured money into the castle. The benefit would be that the castle would stand through the Great Siege of 1216, which was led by Louis VII's grandson, Prince Louis of France, when he revolted against King John in May of 1216. This prince would not give up on trying to conquer Dover Castle, and he would spend three months trying to do so, which stopped his momentum. He eventually was defeated, and the castle had saved Henry's sons and grandsons' thrones, and this was attributed to Becket as well. So this is one reason why people think that the king made the improvements to the castle is because after he'd seen the king of France come here, he had a feeling there were going to be more coming. This is a castle that was right near to Canterbury. So this is going to be a real chance to wow people, not only to show them a really cool castle, but also your power. And if you've poured a lot of money into something, you've got a lot of money too. So it's kind of his way of flexing his muscles, but also because it was so close to Beckett's grave, it was to be kind of an honor to him. There are other historians who claim that a rising anti-monocral cult inspired by Beckett caused the king to want to improve the castle. His goal was to actually outshine Beckett's tomb. Whatever the case, I don't know. I'll let the historians argue it out. A bunch of money was used to improve the castle. The next significant action that the castle would see would be during the Napoleonic Wars in the 18th century. Massive rebuilding was conducted and a bunch of gun emplacements were added. Also, a defensive earthen bank was built up to guard against enemy fire. This would also be when the second set of tunnels were added. They were placed 149 feet below the top of the cliff and were meant to house troops because the castle itself didn't have enough room to house all the troops they needed to man the artillery. About 2,000 men lived in these tunnels that numbered seven at their peak. So you got 2,000 guys stuffed into these tunnels. Napoleon never attacked over Castle, but that wouldn't be the end of the tunnel's use. And since I didn't mention it earlier, the first tunnels were built during medieval times when the Great Siege of 1216 was underway. It was kind of a way where they could escape to. So these were the first tunnels that were put in. 
Now we have our second set of tunnels during the Napoleonic era. The next time these tunnels are going to come into play and that Dover Castle is really going to take center stage is during World War II. These tunnels would become the nerve center for Operation Dynamo, which commenced on May 26, 1940. They were first reinstated for use by the Dover Naval Guard starting in 1938 as the threat of Hitler loomed large. Operation Dynamo was the evacuation of Allied troops from Dunkirk, France. So for those of you who've seen the movie Dunkirk, this is where this whole operation launched from, where it was supervised from, all of the planning was here. British, French, and Belgian troops, numbering over 400,000, were cut off by the German army. All the great military heads came together and were like, what are we going to do here? What are our chances? What possible outcome do we have? And they basically said, you know, I think the best we're going to do is get 45,000 of these troops out. So only 45,000 of 400,000 were going to be able to be evacuated. Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey, who headed the Dover Naval Command, was given the job of running the evacuation, which was clearly an impossibility. And the first two days of the operation only made that seem even more the case. On the first day, only 7,669 men were evacuated, and on the second day, only 11,874. But on day three, the military got big help from some little ships. Old men and young boys not fighting in the war manned tugboats, pleasure crafts, barges, and lifeboats from ports in England, Scotland, and Wales. Their help during the evacuation made the total result of Operation Dynamo 338,226 men rescued in nine days. Those tunnels also became air raid shelters and Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited the tunnels often. So Dover Castle had a lot to do during World War II. The secret wartime tunnels are a winding maze, and it's easy to get lost if not guided. They stretch over three miles. The rooms of the castle were refurbished in 2009 under a 2.45 million pound project managed by English Heritage and were made to resemble how they would have been in Henry's day. Tours are conducted in the castle and begin in an underground bunker room. There are multimedia presentations, and the underground tunnel system takes visitors to an earlier time. There are not only these wartime tunnels to see, but also medieval tunnels, an underground hospital, the Great Tower, the Regimental Museum, and the battlements. The tunnels have mocked up recreations of how things appeared in World War II. Pictures are prohibited, and I'm not exactly sure why, because obviously these mocked up recreations of how things would have been during World War II is not how we conduct war today. These tunnels are not being used for that purpose, so I'm not really sure why you're not allowed to take pictures in the tunnels. And as someone who would want to be doing some kind of investigation in those tunnels, that would be a real bummer because you can't see if you can get any kind of paranormal activity on camera or film. Two levels of tunnels were added during the war. Annex, I think is how you say it, which is A-N-N-E-X-E, was added in 1941, and this is where the underground hospital was located. In 1943, a basement level that was codenamed Dumpy was added. Many parts of the tunnels are off-limits because they've not been explored or are dangerous, and one of those areas is Dumpy. I imagine since it's a basement level that maybe it's just unsafe. Because I'm thinking, you know, these tunnels were easily built because it's basically chalk there, and so it's easier to get through, which makes you think that maybe they would not hold up as well either. On a side note, I found a claim that Gawain is buried at Dover Castle. 
So why don't you come down the rabbit hole with me so that we can talk a little bit more about this? Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. Sir Gawain was the nephew of King Arthur and he was a knight of the round table. Now, I know what you're all saying. King Arthur is a legend. There was no real King Arthur. There was no knights of the round table. But could there have been? I know, we don't have a whole lot of historical evidence for such a thing, but just stay with me for a moment. So, Sir Gawain was one of the greatest knights. He's the hero of the poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is one of the greatest works of Middle English literature, and I'm sure most of you have probably read it at least once, had to read it in school, something like that. He goes to the knight, believing that the knight is going to kill him, but it was a test, one that Gawain fails. So he asks the knights of the round table to absolve him, and they do. They also decide they will all wear a green sash as a reminder to always be honest. Gawain was killed as he came back to Britain to fight Modred, and there are many claims as to where he's buried. There's a myth that claims he's buried on the Pembrokeshire coast as well. This is an older claim than that of him being buried at Dover Castle, so it's more probable. But Thomas Mallory, who wrote Le Morte de Arthur in Book 11, Chapter 2, wrote... And so at the hour of noon, Sir Gawain yielded up the spirit, and then the king entour him in a chapel within Dover Castle. And there yet all men may see the skull of him, and the same wound is seen that Sir Lancelot gave him in battle. There is a thought that a skull was on display in a chapel at Dover Castle, and that people started saying that this was Gawain's skull. And they even say that it showed a wound that had killed him, which proved that to be true. Where that skull is today, nobody knows. Did it belong to Gawain? Well, did he even exist? So we don't know whose skull that was. But I thought that was an interesting little sidebar for you guys. So thanks for going down the rabbit hole with me. So let's talk about the good stuff. That's what you all want to hear, isn't it? The haunts that are going on here. And there are a lot of them. The most haunted area of course, would be the tunnel system. And why wouldn't it be? Because it saw a lot of action, right? Especially a lot of wartime action. Although I don't know that anybody really died in the tunnel system, so I'm not sure why there would be so much activity there. But there would be a lot of energy. If you've got 2,000 men crammed in there together and you're worrying that a war might be coming, there might be some fear, maybe there's some anger, I don't know. But somehow there's some energy that's gotten into this tunnel system. Before we talk about the tunnel system, though, let's talk about the battlements. The ghost that is seen here is said to be that of a young boy, a boy who played the drums of battle. He was sent on an errand carrying a large sum of money. Some thieves either had heard he had this money or they got lucky when they captured him. They decapitated the boy and stole the money. Now, what I believe probably happened here is these weren't just some random thieves who happened upon him. I'm betting that there were some soldiers at the castle who knew that he'd been sent on this errand and he probably was picked because who's going to think a little boy's carrying all this money? And I think it was actual soldiers from the castle that hunted him down because they knew he had the money. Today, his full-bodied spirit is seen on the battlements. Well, not completely full-bodied because as I said, unfortunately, he was decapitated. So he is a headless ghost here. But that doesn't keep him from playing his drum. He is not only seen doing this, but the disembodied sound of drumming is also heard. 
Another spirit belongs to a woman and she wears a red dress. So here we have our woman in red. Makes it a little bit more interesting than just your lady in white. She's generally seen in the old keep and near the west stairway or mural gallery of the keep. No one has been able to make out her facial features and she generally seems to be sobbing. This apparition was reported by a male member of the staff. There have also been sightings of a figure in blue being seen in the mural gallery. This figure is yet to be identified as male or female, which makes me wonder what this figure in blue is wearing, because, of course, back in that time, it would be pretty obvious what gender you were dealing with. Also in the keep and elsewhere, disembodied voices have been heard during the night, and doors have been witnessed opening and closing by themselves often. Sudden unexplained drops in temperatures like cold spots have been felt as well. And speaking of knights, a knight or cavalier has also been seen inside the castle. His dress seems to be from the early 17th century, and he was first documented by a female member of the staff in 1990. She was cleaning in the morning, and when she got to the basement of the keep, she saw a figure that had long, dark, wavy hair and a mustache. The spirit stared at her for about 30 seconds and then faded away into nothing. Now, as I looked at this story, I didn't get any information about what she did, but I'm not sure a spirit would be able to stare at me for about 30 seconds because I'd probably be out of the room. (laughs) Just saying. As I said before, the tunnels are the most haunted area, and many times it is the spirit of World War II soldiers that are seen here and also felt. They're seen going about their duties in a residual manner. They have also been heard. So I guess that gives us a good reason for the tunnels to be haunted if you have some residual activity going on. And obviously World War II would have been a pretty extreme war. And I can only imagine the emotions around trying to get those troops out of Dunkirk would have been pretty trying and pretty emotional. One American couple visiting the castle claimed to hear violent screams and cries for help. They thought they were hearing a reenactment and were startled to find out that no such thing was going on. What would be making this scream or cry? I don't know. Because again, we don't have this castle really being used as uh, there's like no, not an actual battle going on with it. And I know a lot of castles have dungeons and torture chambers and that kind of thing. But this one didn't seem to have any of that. This was really supposed to be a castle that was just for people to come stay and be in grandeur and see all these cool things and stuff. It wasn't really meant for any of that. So I'm not sure where these screams would be coming from. The strangest soldier spirit that's seen here has a blurred face. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever heard of. It's one thing to take a picture and have a blurry face, but to actually look at an apparition and the face is blurry, that's weird. The most recent spotting of him was pretty recent in 2013. Occasionally people get separated or lost in the tunnels and they tell stories of being chased out of the tunnels. Obviously, civilians would not be allowed there, so maybe that's why they're being chased out, because you're going into areas that you're just not supposed to be. These people hear disembodied footsteps running at them, and they flee in terror. It doesn't seem that anyone has been touched by these running spirits, though, so... There have been so many sightings of weird things in the tunnels that the staff have created a protocol for how to deal with them. I guess that's really saying something. If you've created a protocol because something's happening so often, it's kind of hard to doubt that it's happening. Christine Pascal, the castle's visitor operations manager, said, About once a month, we will have a report of something untoward, like a figure. We have a process that we put into place where we close down the system, evacuate visitors, and a team of staff will sweep through the whole network of tunnels. It can be very frustrating for visitors. Well, I can imagine, and probably for their team as well, because 
people just want to do a tour and want to check out the place. And if you've got to shut everything down because you're like, there's something weird going on here. Why is there somebody down there? Because you're not supposed to be wandering around the tunnels by yourself. You have to be part of a tour. So if they have word of somebody who seems to be not hanging out with a group, that's why they're like, we got to shut things down and find out who this is. First of all, they want to make sure it's not an actual real person. Some school children were here on a school outing and were drawing pictures while in the tunnels. One boy wrote, where's Helen on his paper? When asked about it, he said that he had met a man in the tunnels dressed in a green jumper and brown trousers and that the man told him he was looking for Helen. This man matching this description was never found. So they're not sure who that was and who was Helen that he was looking for. Another time, a tour group said a door had suddenly slammed shut and a stretcher trolley that was on display moved very quickly along the corridor as though something unseen were pushing it forcefully. A ghost has been reported in the king's bedroom, and this spirit is usually only seen as the lower half of a man. This was witnessed by two female staff members, and the apparition crossed the doorway of the king's bedchamber during the evening search of the keep. They followed the figure into the chamber only to find he had disappeared, and there was no other exits from which he could have escaped. Other members of staff were close by in the main hall at the time, and they saw nothing, so it's not like he circled back somehow and they just didn't see him do that. Nobody knows why, only the bottom half of this spirit is seen. Only thing I can think of is he just can't materialize fully. A camera crew was filming at the castle and they heard a terrifying scream come from the battlements above them. The scream sounded as though someone had thrown themselves off the castle. They ran for cover so that they wouldn't be hit, but the scream just disappeared and nobody appeared or hit the ground. The lighthouse and church that I mentioned earlier also have a couple of spirits. One is a ghostly monk wearing a dark habit and the other is a phantom Roman soldier. There are many castles in England, each with their own special history. Dover's the largest and one of the oldest. The energy here crosses over many centuries, and some of it seems to continue. Are there spirits here? Is Dover Castle haunted? That is for you to decide. Just another castle to add to the list. One day I will make it over there to see at least one or two of these glorious old buildings, because we certainly don't have anything like that over here. Want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. That's where you can figure out how to find me on social media. I'm all over the place. And if you tweet or Instagram at me or message me, email me in some way, I will give you a response back. I do reply to everything. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Over on YouTube, I do get a lot of troll commentary, but I also get some great comments as well. And I wanted to share a couple of those with you. Kells Bells wrote, I used to work in a nursing home on the short-term rehab floor, knee and hip replacement mostly. We had a resident upstairs on the dementia unit who was almost catatonic, except occasionally she would start screaming and hitting and trying to get up, although she couldn't walk. Every time she had an episode like this, someone somewhere in the building would pass within 24 hours. Then the lady would go back to her normal state. One time, a resident passed upstairs, and right after that, the double doors in the day room downstairs burst open, to the back driveway all on their own. No one was in the room. We all heard a loud bang and went running to see. We went to maintenance to see the security cameras and they really did just burst open on their own, right in the timeline of the residents passing. So pretty creepy stuff there. Wonder if it was a spirit passing through there and how unusual for this woman who basically is catatonic to all of a sudden start screaming and going crazy and then someone passes away, almost as if she can feel death is in the building. 
And then Helen on YouTube was talking about episode 141, and this was featuring the Waitomo Caves Hotel. She said, there definitely are no snakes in New Zealand. Anyway, I've stayed at the hotel three times. In 2014, my 12-year-old daughter and I went back to our room at 10.30 p.m. She went on ahead of me past the reception desk and up the stairs. Between rooms 12 and 12A, there are glass fire doors. She said she heard the doors banging loudly. They didn't move and saw a white flash cross the hall and disappear in room 12. I heard the doors banging from downstairs. Definitely haunted. So thank you to both of you for sharing those over on YouTube. And then Dolly shared in the Spooktacular crew, just had an amazing stay at the Collar Grand Hotel. We stayed on the 10th floor. That was a surgery floor when this establishment was the Mayo Clinic. On the 11th floor is where the pool is. We were getting EMF readings. The closer to the pool, the higher the readings. Then not one but two EMF meters went dead. When we walked in the area, we saw that someone had been in the hot tub because there was water on the floor. I jokingly said, maybe it's the boy. There are tales of a spirit boy that likes the pool. My friend said, how crazy would it be to see footprints? We left the room to retrieve more batteries. And I asked Dolly about the batteries. On one of them, she said she wasn't sure if they were fresh, but on the other EMF meter, they were fresh. So something apparently drained them. Walked back in and I kid you not, there were wet footprints next to the pool. We saw no one pass us at any time. There were no splashing marks or puddles, just the clear, fresh footprints that just stopped. Could someone have run in and dipped their feet, took a few steps, and then just flew away? Maybe, but in my mind, there was no time for this to happen. What do you think? And she also included pictures of the footprints. And I mean, it's clear as day. There are wet footprints walking along, and then all of a sudden, they disappear. And you have to think that, how much time does it take you to get batteries? To me, it just seems weird. If somebody's going to go get in the hot tub or the pool, usually you're not just going to like jump in and then jump back out and run. And even so, if you are wet enough to be making these wet footprints, unless you were just putting your feet in the water, like Dolly said, I would think you'd leave a lot of other dripping too, because your whole body would be wet. So just very peculiar, especially since nobody had been there when they were checking it out. So don't know what y'all think, but that was weird. Then I do have a couple of Apple podcast reviews to share. And guys, this episode and next episode will be it for me sharing reviews. I've just decided I'm not going to do it anymore. It's become a place for trolls to just dump and they like to mark the bad reviews as helpful. So they rise to the top. So I just was like, you know what? I'm not going to waste my time with it. The way iTunes works is that in order for you to rise up in the charts, it's actually who subscribes to the show. It has nothing to do with your reviews. So there's really not too much of a point to them anyway. Speaking of which, iTunes only shows 300 episodes at a time. And although I haven't hit episode number 300, which is going to be a really cool episode I'm looking forward to producing, I have actually done 333 episodes up to this point. If you count all of the bonus episodes and the holiday episodes and extra little stuff I've done. So you can't see some of the earlier episodes on iTunes. So the only way that you're going to be able to see those or access them is if you subscribe to the show, and then you should be able to get all of the episodes just fine. So if you haven't subscribed to the show, consider doing that so you can get all of them. And I encourage you guys to listen to all of them. I know some of the episodes are about places you haven't heard of before, but I found that some of the places that haven't been done to death are some of the most interesting out there. 
All right. So we have Cuppy Cake 0813. Great podcast. Five stars. I absolutely love this podcast. It's the perfect balance of history and hauntings. Two of my favorites. Keep up the great work. And I love the odd facts and the blast from the past facts, too. Blackjack Slim. So much fun. Five stars. Love this podcast. Listen while I'm at work. Diane does a wonderful job of adding not just interesting information, but bringing the legends surrounding the chosen locations. Moment Noddity in this month in history and each episode is great to add to conversations. Love the community on the Spooky Crew and the Iowa Meetup. Can't come soon enough. Keep it up, Diane. Well, thank you. And yes, September, it's getting closer. And then we have to go over to the UK. And this is from Little Social Butterfly, a bit like podcast crack cocaine, five stars. I'm your dealer. Diane has got her format down to a T and is extremely talented at making you feel as though she's sitting in another room in my house chatting. I studied American history for a year at university here in Scotland, and it's great to hear of historical events in deeper detail. Well done, Chickadee. You have a skill at making it vibrant and alive while being respectful of the fact that these are real people with descendants who deserve the respect that you'd want given to your parents. I've been bedbound for two years and finding HGB a few weeks ago has been like a gift from the angels. I've got some quality banter that isn't in any way taxing or difficult to understand. I'm a first time podcast reviewer and this is probably my final one too, but I've been prompted to comment because the nitpicking, petty, mundane faults that are being used to justify a low rating are beyond silly. Some folks need to stand up, go outside and join the world. Perhaps their perspective would change with a little real life intervention in the big, bigger picture. Professional, funny, informative, engaging, and easy listening to help school kids become switched on to history. Go you. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate that, Butterfly. And I am sorry to hear that you have been bedbound. I don't know if this is a permanent situation for you. I, I hope it's not. But if it is, I'm glad that I'm able to ease that a little bit for you and keep you entertained while teaching you a little bit about history. And yes, I love to keep it so that kids can listen to it as well. Well, I want to thank you guys for tuning in for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the graveyard, Amanda Thur. You are going to be getting a beautiful garden crypt. Thank you so much. And now, Mort, I'm going to toss it to you, big guy. It's time for some more of your eulogies. Eulogies by Mort. Renee Cochran was a producer for a long time. To her I dedicate this little rhyme. She came from the big state of Texas. I promise to have her buried by breakfast. Jennifer Williams's city shared a name with an oddity. Because Roanoke is famously known as the Lost Colony. She had supported HGB for a whole year. I hope she picks my picture for her annual gear. Glenda Becker liked houses that were old. And creepy stories that leave you cold. She has joined her fellow executive producers. Now let me run off to introduce her. Kathy Benzulas had lived at beautiful Virginia Beach. Now she has gone to a place we cannot reach. She liked a story about a phantasm. 
using this shovel has given me a spasm. This next eulogy is for Ginger Galloway, whom I am sad has passed away. She had a rascally sparkle in her eyes. That makes me think she'll be a mischievous poltergeist. Margie Whittack was great for suggesting a horror movie. To me, that makes her pretty groovy. She lived in the state of Delaware and had an attitude of devil may care. Jerry and Tracy Polly were a fabulous hillbilly duo. They talked about ghost stories too you know. Now I'm hoping Tracy and I can do a graveyard rap. Once I wake her up from that afterlife nap. Anybody seen my Ouija board? Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.